everyone, and welcome again to Submitted for Your Approval, a Twilight Zone podcast. I am your host, Brandon Cruz. Welcome back to the show. This is for the season finale of season two uh, of both uh, this show and season two of the Twilight Zone. Uh, with me today, I have a awesome guest, a awesome guest, putting two vowels next to each other for that. He deserves it. <laughs> On today's show, he, he's one of the board of directors for the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, and he's coming out with a book through University Press of Mississippi called Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. I want to offer a wonderfully warm welcome to Mr. Nicholas Parisi. Hello. Hey, Brandon. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, th- thank you. Thank you for taking the time and, and coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it. No, thank you. I'm very, very happy to be with you. Yeah, how how are how are things out there where you are? We discussed this a little bit uh, before <laughs> I started recording. Well, New York is just a strange place right now as far as the weather goes. I mean, it's just been miserable, rainy, cold. I mean, we had one beautiful day, and then the next day it was freezing. So it can't make up its mind quite yet. So, uh, but today's uh, it looks like it might have turned a corner. We got sunny skies and fifty degrees, and so maybe we're on the right track now. I'm not so sure. I, I think. Like. I think Punxsutawney Phil really kind of messed it up for everybody this year. Well, all right, we'll blame him. That's that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, sentient uh, little rodent. Uh, it, of course, it's going to be him, right? <laughs> yeah, well, any, any excuse to watch the movie again is as good. You know, as good for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Groundhog Day is one of my favorites. <laughs> yes, oh, it's so so good, so good. Uh, well, today we are talking about, uh, as I mentioned before, the last episode of season two. That is The Obsolete Man. It originally aired May 30th of 1961. Stars Fritz Weaver as the Chancellor, the great late Burgess Meredith as Wordsworth, uh, and we have Joseph Elick, who is surprisingly still alive. He's the subaltern, who is he's, uh, he's the, the gentleman at the head of the table and then is eventually uh, on top of everything uh, at, towards the end of the, the episode. Directed by Elliot Silverstein, who directed four episodes. Uh, this was his debut, I believe. And written by, of course, our man, Rod Rod Serling. Yes, one of my favorites, for sure. Uh, top top ten, for sure. Probably top five. I mean, um, you know, in my book, I focus on just the, just the episodes that Rod Serling wrote. And, and yes, this is one of them, and certainly one of his best. Oh, that, that's that's fantastic. That's awesome. And, and I'm definitely going to hit you up about your book, uh, at, at the end, because I'm really, I'm really intrigued by, uh, his, his life. And, and I, I have more questions about that <laughs> later. Sure. sure. Uh, okay. Great. And I'll probably not, st- I'll probably try to st- not stumble through them. Uh, when I, when I do that. <laughs> I'll try not to stumble through my answers too. So <laughs> right, on the same page. deal. We got it. We got a deal here. <laughs> uh, so the synopsis in an unnamed dystopian reality, a librarian, Romney Wordsworth, is found to be obsolete at a court hearing run by a high chancellor for the state. The state, as it is called, gives Wordsworth 48 hours to choose how he wants to be executed or, as they say, liquidated. Wordsworth requests a private assassin to detail the means of his death, as well as for the state to televise the event. His request is granted. During the evening of his execution, Wordsworth is visited by the chancellor. After a brief discussion, the Chancellor finds that he is locked in the room, and with the bomb, Wordsworth has chosen as his preferred method of death. Though the Chancellor stays mostly calm, awaiting his newfound mortality, he eventually cracks under the strain, and Wordsworth lets him go, seconds before the bomb explodes. Later, the Chancellor shows back up to the court where he is quickly found to be obsolete as well, and is quickly, more quickly than Wordsworth, disposed of. And that 
is your episode. Now, Nicholas, I want to ask you, what do you think of this episode? Well, as I mentioned, it, it certainly is one of my favorites. It's it's um, it's certainly among the deeper episodes of Twilight Zone. I think. I mean, Sterling's got a whole lot on his plate in, in this episode. I mean, dealing with totalitarianism and and um, you know human rights and individual rights and and how the individual rights can be usurped by you know the state, the totalitarian state. Um, these were subjects that were dear to Serling's heart. I mean, he was passionate about about these subjects. Um, I mean, he served in World War II. He saw, you know, for Rod Serling, this was not, you know, don't I want to say is that what was it fantasy? I mean, it was fantasy, but he was it was a little too close to reality. I mean, anybody who grew up in that era saw uh saw Stalin. They saw Hitler. I mean, they uh, you know, they lived through the, you know, the reality of this episode. Uh, I mean, Serling took it to the nth degree in a, in a science fiction sense, um, but he saw what could happen uh, under this type of a state. So he wanted to address this, the idea that the, you know, the sanctity of the individual could be could be undermined by this type of a state. Um, and he, you know, got very lucky by casting, you know, you know, Burgess Meredith and and, and the great Fritz Weaver um, in this episode. They're both terrific in it. Um, what else would you expect from Burgess Meredith, particularly? Right. I mean, he was great and great in everything he ever did. But, um, and and you know, so so they both your great performances. But you know, so yeah, so they 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 give voice to just some some beautiful philosophic writing from from Serling. And and again, he, he Serling reveals how adept he was at creating this entire world in 24 minutes. You know, in, in 24 minutes, you get this massive sense of scope of of the of the of the scope of the state of the scope of the oppression that the state dealt to this to this character just through one character it's not like you see a whole you know um group of characters who are being oppressed or being uh, discriminated against you only needed one you only need the obsolete man yeah. and you know so it, the story is succinct it's you know it's it's to the point and it and it and it hits you with a hammer at the end of it because you know just i mean the ending i mean you, you went through the synopsis and and that ending is just, um, you know, it's a terrific Serling type of twist. I mean, the 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 chancellor escapes with his life, but gets back to the, you know, the government's you know, office and dis- discovers that he is now obsolete because he has revealed his weakness. He has revealed that he couldn't deal with this this one man, the, the power of this one man, and he is now no longer of use to the state. And it's a no, it's a brilliant ending, and it's and it's a it's a you know it's a great twist ending, and and you know and also I mean the, uh, you mentioned the director whose name I I forget actually, but I mean the 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 touch with all the all the essentially zombies at the end making the humming noise right. as they descend upon upon <laughs> Fritz Weaver, it's uh, I mean that's just tremendous. It's it's just a it's a great moment, uh, a great moment in a great episode. Yeah, uh, you 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 brought up a few points. Um... I'll, I'll, I'll start I'll start at the back end and, and work uh, to the past uh, the, okay. the the ending the the zombies the uh, you know when when Burgess Meredith is first there and he's he's first in the trial and, and they're they're accusing him of being obsolete the I guess you know jury or, or whoever is on whoever we're calling the, the folks on the side the uh, the Greek chorus almost they mm-hmm. The only time they interact is is really when they come up with a verdict and they say uh, we find him obsolete. 
at the end, there's a there's a difference there when they're dealing with Fritz Weaver when they you know they they interact with him more and they 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 start with that like mild hum and they they build that hum as they are kind of like I don't know West Side storying at him <laughs> sur- surrounding him and, and and then start start chasing him and they they break that hum with ah going after him and that's. I, I, I wanted to ask what, how is the, uh, how uh, Fritz Weaver, how is it, how is he dealt with different than when Burgess Meredith is in front of the chancellor? It's, that's a, uh, it's a great observation. Uh, it is different. You're right. I, I think really the, the, the difference is, I think that it's just the chancellor at that point had betrayed everything that the that the state stood for and the state believed in. So I think at that moment, you're really dealing with, um, you know, I, I use the term, I mean, they're not literally zombies, but they might as well be because they are slaves to the state. And at that point, I think what you're dealing with is, is zealotry. You're dealing with the zealots who believed firmly in the in the, the glory of the state. And now they're pre- presented with this. You know, he, he was their hero who had betrayed them and they are going to tear him apart. Um, so they they really turn into monsters at that at that point um, to go after Fritz Weaver, you know, at the end of the episode. So yeah, there is certainly a change in tone, big time at at, at that point. That, yeah, that, oh, I, I like I like that because you, I think you nailed nailed what I was trying to kind of put into words in the sense that you know when they're dealing just with Burgess Meredith, they are they they are composed and they're they're displaying the what they want. To, to, to portray this this strength this they just stand tall their their strength and then with Fritz Weaver who's betrayed them they made them look like fools they're the monster inside the Incredible Hulk or uh, Mr. Hyde is, is out and so you that uh, that visage is melted away and they are they're monsters at that point in time yeah exactly uh, the now you, you mentioned scope uh, when in as regard in regard to you know you you just have these two characters for the most part and it tells you everything that you need to know about the state and and how uh, oppressive it is. Uh, I noticed that between the the set design, which is fan- fantastic, when when they're in the courtroom, it's very kind of open. But even though it, it even though it's open there's still a claustrophobic feel to it uh, with, with the angles and what have you. And even with the, um, the, the framing of folks, the, the uh, jury on the side of Burgess Meredith. Uh, But then compare that to when Burgess Meredith is inside his apartment and it's, everything is, is close up and that almost feels to me more open than when there's this foreboding darkness in, uh, in the courtroom. Uh, what do you what do you what do you feel about that? Uh, I think well, I think what you're seeing really is well in the courtroom and and when when Romney Wordsworth first appear you know uh, appears in the courtroom, everything about that set and obviously this was deliberate. There was nothing by accident on you know in this episode or any other any other of the Twilight Zone episodes. But the um, everything in that set is designed to make the individual small. It is, in, it is to put Fritz Weaver, the chancellor, way up high above above the puny, obsolete 
librarian um, to make the table 20 feet long to make it look like, you know, he's got a mile between him and the chancellor. Um, The doorway that he walks through is 25 feet tall. Um, Everything is made to impose on on the the individual. Everything is made to make the individual seem tiny, to, to, to feel powerless. Um, and then what you're feeling is that, yeah, you feel that powerlessness. And then when you're in, Ram- in Wordsworth's apartment, all of a sudden it's comfortable. Even though they're in this little apartment uh, and they should be more claustrophobic, they're closer together, obviously, and everything. But it's comfortable. He's sitting, you know, he's comfortable in his chair and reading his Bible and, you know, legs crossed and, and, and he's home, you know. So, so he has that comfort, even though he's facing death. Um, he's in his proper place. You know, his, his, he's, he's in his happy place, you know, to, you know, to some, you know, for the most part, you know, so yeah, yeah. And I, you know, this is the obsolete man is, um, one of those, it was not, um, Sterling never wrote it as a short story. Um, you know, he adapted several episodes as short stories, but he never adapted this one and nobody else has either. And I tell you, I wish somebody, somebody would, because, um, there's a lot here, I think that uh, is worthy of, um, um, of expansion into a, you know, into a literary short story. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you you mentioned um, um, him inside, you know, just being comfortable in, inside his his apartment. Uh, you, you know, just the the way uh, the blocking is with Wordsworth being in in the foreground of the the picture, making him seem larger than the state in the background portrayed by Fritz Weaver, uh, where he's you know even though he's standing tall and Burgess Meredith is sitting down. He, uh, Fritz Weaver, the state seems much smaller than, uh, than because Wordsworth. yeah, because he's uncomfortable because he, he could see it immediately. I mean, as you mentioned, he does he tries to keep his cool. I mean, he takes a little while before he completely breaks down, but you can see almost immediately that that uh, that the chancellor is uncomfortable. He's out of his elements, and Fritz Weaver portrays that. I mean, he's uncomfortable in his own clothes, you know, just pulling at his collar and, and kind of a little sweating and, you know, just, you know, his eyes become twitchy, um, you know, looking, looking around the room, you know, just wondering, you know, what he got himself into, uh, you know, so yeah, he, he gives off that, that vibe that something is wrong here, uh, with him for sure. And, and, and Wordsworth says to him, you're cheating the audience. You're not facing the cameras. Uh, <laughs> what complete- a great yeah, oh yeah, completely mirroring what the chancellor said to him not a few minutes earlier, uh, and it, and it brings me to a question uh, for you, and it, it it's in regard to the power of television, and you know the though the main conceit of this episode is the toxicity of authoritarianism. Uh, do you think Rod was also trying to make a secondary point about the power of television? I don't know to tell you the truth. Um, he certainly could have been. Um, but I think that if he was, that was almost subliminal, um, even for himself, you know, I mean, there are certainly times where I think that Sterling would have been surprised by, you know, all writers are surprised sometimes when they see their own work and say, wow, I, I had something else going on that I didn't even realize was there. And that may be, be the case. Uh, I mean, Sterling certainly understood the power of television and wanted to use it you wanted to use it in a, in a, in a proper way. Um, but I think in this case, it really was just a means to apply. It was a plot device because he had to have a way to, sh- for the world to see the chancellor lose his cool and break down. And that was obviously the way to do it. Right. Uh, do, do you, uh, even though maybe it wasn't, uh, maybe it wasn't his, uh, even a secondary point on his, uh, part, maybe just sublimable, sublimba, sublimba doll. 
Uh, there you so, go. <laughs> uh, subliminal. Uh, do, do you think that this episode makes a, a good point about the power of television? Well, it it could. I mean, I, it can. I mean, you could certainly look at it that way. I think that um, one of the points it makes, I guess, is you know, is, you know, I think Sterling kind of, I mean, what we're really seeing is that the, the, the state was the, the populace, you know, they were going to tune in to see an execution. I mean, that's what they were going to see. So, so I think one of the statements that maybe he was making was our, um, you know, desire almost to see things that we shouldn't want to see, you know, I mean, the desire to see somebody executed. Um, and he did get into that, that concept several times, particularly when we're talking about lynchings, and I don't want to get too deep in here, but but that of course was another subject that was you know uh, something that Sterling dealt with often, and he dealt with the idea that you know why would anyone want to go see a hanging, you know he dealt with that in several you know even in the, in the Twilight Zone in in Dust and in um yeah. you know other episodes where there were hangings you know what what would bring somebody to want to see that to want and I think that was really more here that that you could actually tell you know and words i'm not worried with the chancellor actually says you know it has an educated effect on the populace um to, to see it to see an execution you know so i think that absolutely was something that Sterling wanted to, a statement that Sterling wanted to make that you know that this was you know something that could be that tell tell could be used for our worst instincts to indulge our worst instincts right right yeah and that that kind of brings me to this question which is since the state media does have an educative effect, does who really wins at the end of this episode? Uh, you know, does, does, is that educative effect on end on the side of Wordsworth in your opinion, or does it end on the side of the state? You know, it's is, a, gr- well, it's a great question. I think that, well, first of all, I think that Wordsworth wins on his own terms just because he stayed true to himself and tr- and true to his own uh, beliefs, and he never broke. So I think, regardless of the fact that Wordsworth dies at the end, he won, as far as he goes. Now, did who lost uh, is you know did he win over somebody? I'm not so sure. He he won in his own turn on his own terms. Um, as far as whether the state won or lost. I think you'd have to, um, you know, you'd have to extrapolate and see what you think that the that the audience, how what the audience took from seeing the chancellor break down like that. Um, we saw how his colleagues in the government reacted. They tore him apart, and I'm sure installed a new chancellor, who's probably the subaltern, as you alluded to. Yeah. Um, but the the populace, for all we know, after they tore. Uh, the chancellor apart there may have been riots in the streets trying to say you know down with the down with the state you know who knows you know there may have been a, a revolt because they saw that the state was human and it wasn't you know it wasn't a the the steel god you know it wasn't you know joseph stalin the steel the steel czar you know um they saw the weakness and who knows maybe this was the beginning of the end for the state that's right we can it, hope yeah we, we we can hope and in you know in the, in his final lines i think you know, he he's erring on the side of uh, the state eventually failing. Um, it, oh, any, absolutely. Yes. Know, any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. So, yeah, I, I mean, hope hopefully uh, we're erring on the side of optimism on that. Um, it, you know, with the with the viewers, not only in this episode, the the viewers inside the episode but the viewers outside the episode, um, I in Martin Graham's book, he 
throws out this quote uh, from a writer to Serling, uh, and and this is what one of the one of the the viewers of the episode said: "We watched your pro commie program. Do you believe books can save us in America? The super state is to be mocked by the cheap likes of you and your rusky pals. You preach the." <laughs> You preach the commie line now, but when such patriotic societies as our John Birch Society are in power, you'll find out what obsolescence really is. Yours, a patriot. Uh, yeah. And, and I don't, I don't know how much I have to comment on it other than to say, that's not what I, that's, it's amazing to me. The complete opposite. You would get the complete opposite of that from that episode, wouldn't you? Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and sadly, that is not uh, that was not unusual. That letter, Sterling got several letters along the same lines to that in reaction to this episode, and I and I'm completely with you. I there 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 are plenty of times where I can understand where a you know a writer like that is coming from. You know, to you know, I can at least wrap my brain around it. In this case, I I completely uh, don't understand it. It's the complete opposite of everything the episode was about. It's it's anti communism it's 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 t- putting the the stalin regime up to a microscope and saying look at this is you know this is uh it's evil i mean you know i mean it, could, it certainly could not have been any clearer and yet somehow people at that time certain people at that time the birch society folks you know mentioned in the letter uh were offended where they had no no means to be offended it was just i, I have no idea where that letter writer is coming from uh, yeah i i i i you know they mentioned pro commie the the whole re- resolution or, or or crux of the resolution for uh the chancellor to survive is him for the love of god let me out yeah yes exactly right uh which right. which is completely <laughs> anti-communist at that point in time the the atheistic right. state right and and also you know the, the, that letter is alludes to the uh you know do you think books can save us i mean that's just that's just the quintessential anti-intellectual uh, attack, you know, that's, oh, you know, you and your fancy schmancy education and books, you know, you know, you shouldn't be preaching this stuff, you know, uh, you know, that's not going to save us. Well, well, if it's not, you know, uh, you know, then nothing is going to save us because, you know, that's that's where it is. I mean, so, yeah. So they were offended just by that. That that idea, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. And it, it it's a it's a common theme in literature uh, Fahrenheit 451, for instance, the the idea that that logic, uh, knowledge are enemies uh, of yeah. of a dictatorship or uh, authoritarianism. Right. Uh, what 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 other what other thoughts do you have on on the episode? You know, uh, well, I, I'll tell you one thing. I, I I'll tell you this. I'm very happy that I got to meet Fritz Weaver before he died. Uh, he was a he was a lovely man. I mean, just a just a gentleman's gentleman, um, really, really kind guy who would just would do anything for you. Um, so, yeah, I, I was able to meet him maybe a year before he before he died. And he was perfectly he seemed perfectly healthy to me and everything. Um, so I was very sad to, to see him go. Um, and again, just to touch on Burgess Meredith again, I mean, uh, he, of course, started in four episodes. And, you know, one is. Mr. Dingle the Strong, which is uh, uh, which is not not the, not among the best, but the other three episodes, even the hour long one that Burgess Meredith did, he was just terrific in all of them, and all completely different performances, you know, com- absolutely completely different, um, you know, from from Henry Bemis in Time Enough at Last to this one, those are two completely different people, you know, and so the range that Burgess Meredith showed in just you know in these in these four episodes is pretty amazing. 
And again, just to get back to the idea of I'm always amazed at how um, how fully Serling could develop a story in that short a period of time. He always he always said how difficult it was how and not even difficult. He would say it's impossible. It's impossible (laughs) to to tell a fully developed story in 24 minutes. Well, he proved himself wrong constantly because because he did it. He did it over and over again. And really, that's that's really amazing to me. And and it is. And and I I think when eventually I I get into season four and I say eventually because all my episodes are sporadic at best. um, Yeah, I think that might be a common theme is the how how different the the hour long format is to uh, to the the shorter half hour episodes because you have so much extra time that you need to fill uh, in an hour episode. And that, sure. you know, you're, you're, you're stretching out the characters and I, and I don't know how easy it is to switch your, your mindset after you've done three seasons of, of 30 minute episodes to them being like, okay, actually, how, how do I, how do I make this character? Um, how do I make these characters? How do I make this story go further? I guess. Yeah. 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 It's not easy as you think yeah. what season proves. Sure. Uh, yeah, you you mentioned a time enough at last, which is you know a great, uh, great episode, and in that, with this one has Wordsworth, uh, and who's who's a librarian, he's fighting for books. Uh, do you see, do you see these two the two characters as kind of conflicting? Are are they are they opposite ends of the spectrum, or uh, how, how do you how would you compare the the two of them? Well, I, you know, they obviously they do have that love of literature in, in common. That's that's obvious. Um, but um, I think just in terms of when I said that they're two completely different people, I mean, I, I'm talking more along the lines of temperaments. I mean, they're you know, I mean, uh, Henry Bemis is a mouse, you know, compared to to uh, Rom- to me, Romney Wordsworth is really one of the hero heroes of the Twilight Zone. In any episode, he's he's got the inner strength that that anyone you know, would, uh, be envious of, you know? So I think in that, in those terms, they're completely opposite. Um, Henry Bemis could be, you know, you know, belittled by his wife, you know, whereas, uh, whereas Romney Wordsworth could stand up to the head of the state, you know, and then take him on, you know? So, so, but, um, but as far as, yeah, as far as that, um, particular, uh, commentary on the, on the value of literature, um, that is absolutely similar in both episodes. And that was not, in uh that was not in the short story time enough at last and and i could be wrong it's been a little while since i read the short story but i don't think the um lynn venable made any particular points about um you know the value of literature or in that that or at least in the in the uh sense that serling did um so so that was yeah that was a big point of the episode that a that a that a society that doesn't recognize the value of literature the value of words destroys itself Mm -hmm. they you know, we drop the bomb on ourselves, you know, um, that is, uh, I think that's a key point in that, in that episode is that, uh, that's the poetic justice in the episode is that you have a, a, a society where Helen Bemis can take, can find her husband's book of poetry and cross out every word on every page and tear out and then tear out the pages and call it doggerel. And the next day when Bemis goes to work, his, his boss says that his wife is a, is a very intelligent woman. She's a highly intelligent woman. <laughs> and that's, that's, the, that's the society he was living in. And that's the society that, that bombs itself to death. You know? So that, that's, uh, that's where Serling was going with that, I, I believe. That's a, a fan, fantastic point there. Mm-hmm. Um, do, uh, so I, I want to ask this, this just last question, going back, going back to the, the courtroom. 
and this is uh I, I i got this thought from a listener of my other podcast but he he mentions that uh the like the, the choir the the jury whatever we want to call it on the sides you know aren't i mean what 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 purpose do they really serve what aren't aren't they in a way like are they obsolete or are they are they just if if you're able to be a tool of the state does that make you not obsolete i guess uh well in this sense i guess i think it does yeah i think they were just functionaries you know they were they were uh sounding boards they were that's the echo chamber you know they were they were there just to uh confirm anything that the chancellor laid down you know i don't think you found a lot you would find a lot of uh disagreements among that chamber and i'm you know i don't think there's much healthy debate going on in that in that in that body you know so i think they were probably there as yeah they they were but they were probably obsolete by any standard that you or i would 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 you know would put put on them but um in that world yeah i think they were government functionaries and they escaped being obsolete by the fact that they served the state in the way that you know the way it was meant to be served you know they they that's what they did uh, that was their function good 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 yeah i i think i think the only thing they would argue about is after they uh sentence him to death they're like all right cool where do you want to go to lunch and then they argue about <laughs> yeah. that about that maybe yep. <laughs> you know? it could be yeah right, yeah right right the state's like go to mcdonald's pick me up a <laughs> cheeseburger uh that's <laughs> sorry that's stupid um okay so i i ask everybody when they, when they come on to to rate the episode in, in whatever whatever scale you choose so if, if you had to choose what would you what would you rate this episode uh, well, I'll give you two ratings. Uh, one is, and I hate to sound like I'm plugging the book, but I just brought it to mind because in the in the book, one thing that I do is uh, I do rate the episodes, and oh, cool. but I rate them I rate them only on a scale of one to three, and I'll tell you why. I, d- I did that because uh, one of Sterling's favorite uh, famous um, comments was he said, you know, there were you know, about a third of the episodes were ones that I'm proud to be a part of. About a third of them were passable, and about another third of them were dogs. Now, that was his 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 uh, you know uh, breakdown. I think he was completely off on a couple of a couple of those. But I said, you know what? I'll I'll go with that, and I'll I'll rate the episodes on what just one star, two star, three stars. That's it, and no halves, no no nothing. So that's this clearly a three star episode for me, and you know and it's to me again one of the best that in scale of one to ten. I mean, you know, as close to a ten as you want to, as you want to give it. I don't I don't find any flaws in this episode at all. No, absolutely. I'm I'm in full concurrence of a three star. It's I, I want I watched it last night. I watched it again here before we recorded, and it's when we, when we talk about the the power of its message then and now and its relevance, uh, you know, in contemporary times. It's just it it's it's hard not to have a deeper connection with the episode as the, as years go by for me, and it's I, I mean I, it's I know, it's scary sometimes how. Um, I can't think of the word, but how how current it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's plenty of episodes like that, right? I mean, it's amazing how some of them just you know just get better with time. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you, thank you so much. Any 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 final thoughts on the episode before before we move on? No, that's that. I think we covered it. All right. Yeah, I appreciate that. Three stars. We we both agree. I I think Rod would as well. Yes, but I want to. I don't want to talk for him because you know that's who am I? Who am I to speak for somebody else? Uh, all right, man. Well, hey. So we, we you we've alluded to it a few times now, but I I want to I want to talk to you about your your book. So it was originally uh, Dimensions of Imagination, uh, but now yes. it's Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination. So uh, 
looking at the the blurb for the book, you say it's it's part biography, part literary study, part reference guide, but a complete look at all of Rod Serling's dimensions. So can you can you just tell us just a little bit about the book and and uh, thank you, I, I appreciate it, uh, Brandon. Sure. Um, well, it, it is it's it's the first book that will actually cover Rod Serling's entire career um, in in his totality um, from from the very first script that he sold in 1950, uh, Grady Everett for the People, for Stars Over Hollywood, all the way through the last episode of Night Gallery that he wrote, uh, you know, in 1973. Uh, so it's it's part biography in that it starts with some bio- biographical um, information and, you know, in terms of how, it, how his life and experiences informed his work. Um, but it then gives you a show-by-show breakdown of Serling's career, again, right from the beginning all the way through. Um, so it's essentially, you know, about 200 shows or so, um, you know, in his career. And I think for people who, you know, don't know much about Rod Sterling besides the Twilight Zone, I think they may be, may be surprised because, you know, I guess if there was, if there is a point that I wanted to make in this book is that Rod Sterling was more than the Twilight Zone, um, as great as it was and as much as we love it. And I would never belittle it in the least, um, but Rod Serling wrote a whole lot of other things, um, some really great stuff. Um, I mean, he won four Emmy Awards outside of the Twilight Zone. He won three Emmy Awards in, a, in three years in a row during the golden age of television uh, for Patterns and Requiem for Heavyweight and The Comedian. Um, he wrote, co-wrote Planet of the Apes. You know, he, he wrote Seven Days in May, a brilliant uh, political thriller. Um, there are some great episodes of Night Gallery. I'm not a huge fan of the series in in uh, in total, but um, but there are some terrific episodes, and he wrote some truly some of his best stuff for Night Gallery. Um, he wrote other, you know, I could go on and on about the about lost gems in Sterling's catalog. Certain episodes of Playhouse 90 that no one has seen uh, that were that were tremendous. Um, so this book just takes you straight through and tries to give you. A new picture of Rod Serling's career, because one of the things that I found in reading, you know, the other, you know, two biographies that are written uh, uh, about him and some other things, it's it's very easy to get a picture of Rod Serling's career that I don't believe is completely accurate. And that picture, and I think anyone who's read the, the books will will um, will relate to this, is that the picture is basically that Rod Serling was, you know, a middling, uh, you know, just a working writer like a hundred other writers, and then stardom hit with patterns in 1955 overnight success and after that then he had requiem for heavyweight which was another great success and then he had the twilight zone and then after the twilight zone that was pretty much it he was just he was just done the, you know his, his career was just on a complete downward trajectory from the day the twilight zone went off the air until until he died in 1975 and that's just it's that's that's bogus um but it's very easy to get that picture from 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 other you know, from other sources. So I wanted to address that to some extent because there are so many shows that just get short shrifted. Um, again, I mean, just to throw a couple of you know, titles at you, I mean, the rank and file playhouse 90, this is a playhouse 90 that no, it's never been released commercially. Uh, hardly anybody has really heard of it. It stars Van Heflin, Charles Bronson, um, uh, is Kim Hunter in that. I, I'm not sure, but anyway, I, it's one of his, best pieces of work no one has ever seen it it's mm. as good it's as good as patterns i mean i put it in the top my top three of rod sterling's work and nobody's seen it um a slow a slow fade to black starring rod steiger for the chrysler theater same thing what a tremendous piece of work this is an hour-long show a powerful powerful show about uh, about a movie mogul 
who was losing his hold on his um on his movie empire and rod steiger was tremendous in it and and it's a brilliant piece of work no one's seen it you know so there are these shows out there like that and 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 my particular favorite really i mean kind of like my sentimental favorite is the loner uh the western that rod sterling wrote after the twilight zone um it was finally released on dvd uh, just a couple of years ago, after about 50 years, you know, after it went off the air. Right. And there and there are some, uh, it was only lasted 26 episodes. Rod, Rod Sterling wrote 15 of them. And some of, uh, some of them are just brilliant. Again, going back to that idea of a 24-minute uh, show, you know, being, you know, a full-blown story. Um, some of these are just amazing in that regard. Uh, great writing. So, so this uh, gives you a sense, a sense of his life, his experiences, but also, it's also his work throughout the, you know, throughout every show that he wrote for. Um, and it and also includes the I think the first absolutely complete checklist of everything that Rod Sterling wrote that was produced, um, because every other list I I started this book you know looking for lists of things that he wrote and every single one of them was missing things. Huh. So that was the very first thing I did was try to do the research to find out everything that he that he wrote that was produced either on TV or radio or for films. So it has has a complete checklist of, of of everything that he wrote in his whole career. So it's 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 a big uh, it's going to be a big book. It's a it's a pretty a pretty significant book. But, uh, I can't wait for it to come out. Yeah. So so the the scope of the book is incredibly ambitious, and and now that you know just how much is out there uh, and and wasn't out there before, how how difficult was it to compile, shape, research, and and write the book? Well, the good thing was that somehow, anyway, from the from the be- very beginning, when I first started this, I really had a clear picture of what I wanted the book to be. And so in that sense, it was fairly easy because I really did have a, an outline, so to speak, in my head. Uh, I wanted to go from, you know, I've, it is chronological, so that's easy enough. I just wanted to go chronologically. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to get a hold of any shows that I could that, that are out there that exist. Anything I get a hold of and own I did. So I, I own, you know, anything that, that is available, any, anything that you get commercially or non-commercially, I did that. So that was the first thing. And then after that, I wanted to find out, well, where, where is everything else? What does our films in the, um, you know, I went to the Paley center in New York city and, and Los Angeles there. Um, there's, you know, a library there that has a whole bunch of Serling shows that aren't available anywhere else. I went to, um, UCLA Film Archive that has three shows that uh, aren't available anywhere else. I watched those. I went to the Library of Congress, had two shows that aren't available anywhere else. I watched those. So I watched everything that I could. Anything that exists, I, I've seen. So, so you know, I think I, I think I counted at one point. I think I saw, I think I watched about 230 different shows that Serling wrote. And now again, of course, that's only that's only you know ninety two Twilight Zone episodes and thirty eight Night Galleries, so only the things he wrote. Um, so, and if you do that math right there, I mean that's uh, between just uh, Twilight Zone and Night Gallery, you're talking that's one hundred and thirty shows. So I watched basically like a hundred shows besides Twilight Zone and Night Gallery. Wow. You know, so, you know, so um, yeah. And listen, um, nobody writes that much and doesn't write a whole lot of crap too. <laughs> you know, so let's not get crazy. I mean, listen, I, he, nobody can write that much and not write some bad stuff too. He wrote plenty of bad stuff. Um, but not nearly as much bad stuff as you might get an idea of from from some of the books that were written. And not only the books, I shouldn't, you know, uh, pile on the books too much, but also from himself, because Rod Sterling was such a harsh critic of himself that if you listen to his take on his own work, you'll start to think that everything was terrible. And and again, this is one of the great surprises I had in researching this book is seeing things that are so much better than Rod Sterling ever gave them credit for. 
Um, I'll give you just a real quick example. A town has turned to dust, Play S90. Um, this is one of the Emmett Till stories that, you know, supposedly the censors just, you know, tore apart. And his, you know, his famous line was that by the time they got to it, my script had turned to dust. Well, if you've never seen the show and you just take him at his word, you probably think it's terrible. You watch the show. It's it's terrific. It, it, it was it's better than any of the censors uh, had a right to imagine because it still ended up being a great, great show. So, you know, you have things like that that I was continuously surprised by. Yeah, that's uh, I, that's interesting. And, and that's I, I think that that speaks to what his character was, <laughs> you know, not not raising, not puffing his chest out in, in claiming that he was this, this brilliant writer, which we, we all feel of him now. Uh, but you know, <laughs> belittling himself and saying, ah, yeah, whatever is, is, uh, it's crap. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one, it's one of the things that endears him to us. I think is that he had that he, he was so self-effacing and, uh, you know, critical of himself. And sometimes you want to just, you know, reach back in time and say, Hey, Hey Rod, go a little easier on yourself. This is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, are there, are there things that you wish you could have explored more or put more emphasis on over the course of writing? Well, um, I wish that more things existed still. Uh Um, you know, a lot of things were lost, and that again was one of the one of the impetus impetuses, if that's a word, um, I had for the beginning of the book was that I wanted to see what does exist and what doesn't exist. What's what's been lost forever? Because in the early days of television, of course, things were performed live, and they weren't always filmed, and they weren't always preserved. So a lot of stuff is gone, and um, you know, so one of well, one of the things that um, is gone is the very first show he ever worked on really was uh called the storm it was a it was a local show in cincinnati and it was performed live only in, in seen only in the cincinnati area and really only one episode of the show exists i mean it, technically three but it's that's that's a long story but but um but that is you know listen i wish i wish there was a way i could see those shows because they're they're interesting i mean i read pl- some of the scripts and there's a lot of interesting stuff there especially from a developmental you know point of view this is really cutting his teeth you know right. um so i wish i could see that but that stuff has just gone to history unfortunately so yeah i mean we i think we all wish that he had, he had actually put more stuff out uh and, and didn't ne- didn't pass away uh to to what i feel is really early <laughs> um, oh yeah uh, if, if I, I would have liked to have at least been alive when he was alive, even if, even if I was like a one-year-old, you know, pooping my pants, uh, just like, <laughs> well, I, just was, like I, I was, ju- I was just about five when he died. So, uh, so yeah, but, I just want yeah. like some crossover, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, again, you know, the, the, um, again, the amazing thing with Sterling, I mean, if you think about 25 years, I mean, just in 25 years, how much he accomplished and really it's 20 years. Cause the last five years, well, really the last three years, he didn't write, he really didn't produce much in the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. But again, even 25 years, just an amazing body of work. Yeah. What, so uh, you, you've, you've already kind of uh, mentioned what this, this question is, uh, the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask this question anyways, as one of, uh, as one of a gajillion hosts of Twilight Zone podcasts out there, uh, what, what do you think distinguishes your book from, from other uh, Serling books as again you mentioned a little bit with you know this is the first fully compiled list of all his works uh but what is 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 that is that what well, you would shoot for yeah i think that is the the primary difference is just that um you know we've had a dozen twilight zone books and we we've had one really really good night gallery book um scott skelton and jim benson um 
uh, Night Gallery book, which is tremendous. And then we've had a couple of biographies. And, you know, that's pretty much it. But we've never we've never had anything like this that co- that actually covers everything. So, um, you know, what I would say is, I mean, one of the kind of uh, ideas I had in my head was that, you know, when I first started is if you took the if you took Mark Zickery's Twilight Zone Companion, which, again, is a terrific book. And that was really what just blew my doors off when I was 11, 12 years old when I first read that. Um, if you took that book and imagine if that book was not just the Twilight Zone, but it was everything. That's would give you some idea of what I what my book is, um, you know, because it, it does synopsize different shows the same way that Zickery's uh, book does, except it's just not just the Twilight Zone. It's, it's everything. Uh, unfortunately, I could not actually fit. Uh, you know, there was no way. Uh, the first draft of this book was about 260,000 words Ooh. and about, about 1,200 <laughs> manuscript pages. And I, I knew there was no publisher on, on earth that was ever going to publish that. Hot, you know, hot so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I'll come up with a deluxe edition at some point. But so, so, so there are a lot of things that were are summarized very quickly in the appendix. But, but a lot of it, most of it, is in, in the bulk of the book, and, and then a full synopsis like like the Twilight Zone companion style. You know, so yeah, so I think that's the that's the difference really. And and I don't think any other book really weaves in his biography into his work the way this book does. In and out, you know, um, you know, talks about these shows in relation to what he was going through in his life at a particular time. Hmm. Uh, so that's uh, I think that may be a little bit different as well. Oh, that's that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah, that's re- that's really cool. And you know, weaving in that biography of of Serling into into his works and and the, the periods he was going through, uh, what what do you what would you want readers to come away with uh, about who Serling was once they finish once they finish the book and put it down and and have a cup of coffee or tea or something? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's. I, you know, I think it's, um, let me just tell you what I came away with, you know, I mean, I, you know, research, I went through, you know, I researched this book for about four years. Um, and I went through, you know, Rod Sterling has a couple of different archives around the country and he left behind an amazing amount of paper, just an amazing amount of correspondence, letters, and, you know, take uh, recordings, dictaphone recordings. I mean, so, I mean, you can get a really, really good picture of who this guy is by going through his stuff. There's nothing hidden. You know, this is, he's, he's an open book, literally, yeah. you know? So, I mean, I went into this project, uh, admiring Rod Serling to the nth degree, and I came away from it, admiring him even more, you know? So I, you know, I've told, you know, his daughter, Ann Sterling, I've told her this before. It's I, you know, that I, I feel like I've, you know, I've gone through his dirty underwear and I still love the guy. You know, I saw his, I saw all his dirty laundry and I still don't have a negative, you know, a negative idea in my, in my head about him, you know? So that's, that says a lot. And I, so I think people will certainly get the come away from the book knowing that this, this was a, this was a good guy. He was just a, he was a class individual. He was um, a generous guy. He was, um, you know, and he was, again, we touched on it. He was so, so self-efficacy so, um, critical of himself and his own work that he never gave himself the credit he de- he deserved. And I think that people are going to get that from my book for sure, that they'll see the the critiques he gave to some of this stuff, as opposed to some what even the critics said about his work um, at the time. I mean, there are shows that you would think were panned by the critics and you go back to read the reviews and the reviews are very good. You know, so you have, it's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, even his brother, Robert Sterling, once said, you know, that he could see Rod Sterling go through, you know, 12 perfectly great reviews and then get that one terrible one and be depressed for two weeks over it. You know, that's, that's how he was, unfortunately. But, but I bring out the the good reviews in this book (laughs) that, that apparently he overlooked, you know? So I, I, I emphasize those. Yeah. He, he he could read a review and then 
uh, he would write a letter to himself about being a commie lover. And, uh, <laughs> Maybe he wrote that letter. Yeah, yeah, right. he, he, like, <laughs> yeah your show sucks, myself. <laughs> uh, when, when can, uh, so fall, is that when we can expect the book? Yeah, that's that's um, at this point, really, all I can say is by the end of the year, um, I'm hoping I'm, I'm thinking around October. Um, that's my hope. Uh, so sometime before Christmas would be nice. Um, and just uh, it should be available for pre-order fairly soon within a couple of months. Ooh. So, I mean, um, and, you know, and if I could just give the the website real quick. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, have, I just have a, a Facebook page for the book. It's it's dedicated to the book. So it's not my Facebook page. It's, it's for the book. It's uh, Facebook dot com forward slash. Rod Serling Dimensions, and I'll certainly have uh, announcements posted there. And I post, you know, news about Serling there. I post quotes and and you know anniversary updates of things and and all sorts of stuff there. So yeah, if you, if people want to check that out, that would that would be great. Fantastic, yeah. And that's that's Facebook.com forward slash Rod Serling Dimensions. Right. That's great, great. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure I put that note in the show notes. So if if you're listening to this and you want to read some of the show notes. Uh, it'll be there, and you can click the link. Uh, now, I want to I want to ask you briefly. You, I mentioned at the top of the show, you're one of the board of directors there at the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. Uh, and I just I just wanted to ask, you know, how how did you first get involved in the foundation? Um, and and you know what? Uh, if you could talk to a little bit more about the foundation, that'd be, that'd be awesome. yeah, sure, sure. No, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, well, first of all, yeah, the, the foundation uh, you can contact through RodSerling.com. Yes, uh, that's the that's the website for the foundation. Um, the foundation was started long before I came along. I mean, it started in the mid '80s, I believe, or the late uh, mid '80s, I think. And it was um, founded by uh, Helen Foley, who was one of Rod's earliest mentors, uh, teacher in Binghamton, and it's based in Binghamton, Rod's hometown. And it is dedicated to this idea of preserving and promoting Serling's legacy um, in the Binghamton area and worldwide. Um, so the foundation is involved in certain um, things like scholarships and uh, the Rod Serling Film Festival is something that the local um, TV station does. We're going to be involved with that this year. Um, the you know uh, certain you know certain awards um, that we give out to honor you know people who are. Uh, you know, in that, not the fantasy realm, but in the humanist realm that Rod Serling uh, wrote in. Um, so, so yeah, the, the foundation, um, we're having an event, a fundraiser this uh, July 6th and 7th in Binghamton. It's called Serling Fest 2018. Um, it's still in the uh, planning stages, but the dates are for sure. The 6th and the 7th It's going to be at the Forum Theater in Binghamton and the Doubletree Hotel in Binghamton. And we have a bunch of guests, uh, Martin Grams, you mentioned before, he'll be there. Um, I will be there and Serling will be there. I believe Jody Serling will be there as well. And it's going to be a celebration of, of Rod Serling. And this year is just happens to be the 50th anniversary of Planet of the Apes. Yes. And, and it's also the 35th anniversary of Twilight Zone, the movie, uh, the debut in Binghamton, um, for, for good or bad, um, the, we're going to be commemorating the, uh, the anniversary of the movie and uh, we're going to show, and we're going to show both films at the forum theater. So it'll be nice to see them on the big screen again. And, uh, and, and we're gonna have a whole bunch of different events, you know, raffles and, uh, and trivia contests and all sorts of things. So, so that'd be great. And I, you know, I just, I became involved in, in the foundation. Just, uh, I just reached out. I mean, I just uh, reached out and, you know, donated some, donated some money and, and, um, 
and just became involved that way just because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be more involved in Serling's legacy mm-hmm. uh, when I was first started writing the book. And, and now I'm really, you know, happy to be, you know, part of it. Um, it's really a tremendous group of people. Um, one thing, you know, one thing I, I found in, in the, in the foundation and also just in writing the book is that I was amazed that everyone I contacted that had any contact that had any connection to Rod Serling was amazingly helpful and and courteous and and just just you know couldn't couldn't do do enough to help me uh, with my research or whatever it may be and I, I think that's a reflection of of Serling himself uh, of his nature uh, so that's what I found in the, in the foundation as well yeah yeah in the so Serling Serling Fest the uh, that's sixth and seventh in July uh, the Rod Serling Film Festival I noticed uh, on the the website that they there's a K through twelve, uh, film creation part of that contest. So yeah, so, so, yes. So that so the K through twelve students can can submit and uh, a Twilight Zone esque video is is what I'm yeah curious. or yeah or a Sterling esque video yeah yeah so that that's exactly what it is it's it's a it's a yeah K through twelve and they give uh you know awards for the best. In each uh, in each um, age age group, and um, and yeah, so the, those films they're generally short films. They'll be shown at the at the Sterling Fest, and and the awards will be given out and everything. And that, that's I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing that because um, the kids you know the kids get it you know the kids uh, the kids are in tune with uh, this guy who was writing 60 years ago. You know they really are. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, my 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 six year old uh, was watching <laughs> the Obsolete Man with me last night, so. Uh, I don't, I don't know what he got out of it, but um, he eventually did go to sleep and he didn't have nightmares. So, uh, well, that's good. It's a win. Okay. I think it's a win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, the last thing I want to mention is the the Serling Award. Um, yeah, the the past winners of Serling Award. Uh, there was an artist uh, or the their, their documentary on the carousel out there in, in Binghamton uh, mm-hmm. that that won last year, I believe, in in twenty seventeen, um, and. Yeah, I, I just I want to give a shout out to all the Twilight Zone podcasters who who've been uh, on the show and the ones who haven't been on the show. But like between Light and Shadow, a Twilight Zone podcast, Craig Beam, Matt Hurt does Anthology Pod, Tom Elliott who does the Rondo Award winning Twilight Zone podcast, Twilight Pone, the Twilight Zone Zone, the the Twilight Zone Review, Zonisodes, and that Twilight Day show about that zone. There are just so many great. Twilight Zone hosts and you know I mentioned before when I asked you the question about you know what distinguishes your your book uh one of the things that distinguish all the podcasts is each one of the hosts we all have our own experiences and we have a an appreciation for the message that the that the show gave out and whether or not even though we're talking about the same episodes and we're, you know, we're covering a lot of the same information, our experiences shape our, our viewpoint. And I, I think it's fantastic what you're doing over there at the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, uh, coming out with, with your book, um, you know, Rod Serling, his life, work and imagination. Just it's, it's amazing to me that we can all come together and, and, um, you know, with different perspectives, but together. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing. It is. You're right. So, uh, so, so thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. I, I really sincerely appreciate you coming on to the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Brandon. I really had a good time. And, and anytime, anytime you want to come back, uh, you, 
to talk about an episode, you know, you're you're more than welcome. I'd love to. I'd love to. That would be great. Now, for anyone who wants to get a hold of the show, there's a few ways you can do that. Of course, you can hit me up on Twitter. I am at S4YA underscore podcast over there on that Twitter land. You can also find me on email, S4YA podcast at gmail.com. I have a Facebook. Maybe. I'm not sure. I think so. I have an Instagram. Maybe. I think so. Uh, you know, I haven't I haven't really paid attention to these things that, that much, but you can go out there. Check. Check me out. Leave me. Leave me a comment. Leave me a note. You know, this this is this is the last episode in season two. I will do a season two full recap one of these days. And then season three promise to be way more consistent. But keep an eye out for that when it comes out. So to everyone out there, thank you so much. And of course, I'm Brandon Cruz. This is submitted for your approval.